Stop the spirit, she is like a mountain, old and strong. She goes on and on and on. You can't stop the spirit, she is like a mountain, old and strong. She goes on and on and on. She goes on and on and on. She goes on and on. Amen. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, this practical doctrine with radical consequences for us. In Scripture, Jesus describes being sent from the Father, and then he sends the Holy Spirit, named as the Advocate, or the Spirit of Truth, in today's Gospel. Catherine Lacuna's book, God for Us, explores the persons of the Trinity, and she offers this elevator speech for Christianity. In Jesus Christ, the ineffable and invisible God saves us from sin and death by the power of the Holy Spirit. God continues to be altogether present for, with, and in us, seeking everlasting communion with all creation. And I want you to hear the relationship in that claim, like the connection between a parent and a child, community and family that we celebrate today with Violet and Peyton and Philip and their gathered families at baptism. Look into a baby's eyes and watch them smile. Feel that connection in your chest. This is the joy of relationship. One of the defining traits of the Trinity. You know, the early Greeks talked about a perichoresis, a whirl or a dance of three persons in that same kind of relationship. Dwight Shiley puts it this way, the Trinity is the Christian way of describing a God involved in human affairs, who transcends the world in ultimate mystery and yet also enters the world at its most particular and concrete, who is timeless and present, powerful and active, even today. This spirit is not a random feeling of niceness, it's not a strange tingling nor a magic smell, spell, or smell. <laughs> it is the Holy Spirit, the named activity of God in our midst. And so the radical claim of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity is that these three persons are co-equal and defined by love and passionate about relationship. And that is why a revitalized doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity changes why and how we do church. I think it's a really common perception of Christianity that it's something of a moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is to say, you and I should be nice and feel good, and God is there in a pinch for the prayer list, but not active in our daily life. But this is an ethical spirituality that makes no claim of public truth. It is weak sauce compared to the claims of a triune God, passionate about relationship with you and everybody else in the world, in short, a triune God is getting ready to send you and me out because God so loves the world. And that is the dynamic truth of the Trinity, that God sends. God sends forth the act of creation in a primal blur. God so loves the world that he sends his only son. 
Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the spirit of truth in our midst. The Holy Spirit builds and sends God's church, and God's church sends you and me into the troubled waters where God's kingdom is not. It is precisely there in these waters that God calls us to build the kingdom of Shalom, which is a just peace for all God's children. Friends, this is the apostolic mission of God, and the world is hurting. I have just returned from our bipartisan and multiracial pilgrimage to Selma and Montgomery. I want to tell you that something happened in me and in our group as we walked the Pettus Bridge where John Lewis and hundreds of others got beaten as they marched for voting rights. Something shifted for us as we listened to the stories at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Selma, where seminarian Jonathan Daniels was rejected by a white usher just a few days before giving his life to save Ruby Sales from the shotgun blast of a Klansman. We were shaken to our core as we learned the grim and all too often hidden stories of racial terror lynching in Georgia, the third deadliest state in the nation. Even talking about it now, I feel nervous to tell you about it. We learned that these murders were systemic, intentional, and they involved the complicity of law enforcement. Officials ranking all the way up to the governor's mansion would falsely claim that they were powerless to stop it. Congress passed a law to prevent lynchings, but the Supreme Court intervened to prevent its enforcement. In some cases, pastors would call for a lynching. At one point, All Saints even raised money for the Klan, at least once during this era, and fewer than 1% of these murders were prosecuted. Lord have mercy. As I walked through the museum and the memorial, I found myself feeling sad and then angry, and then defensive. I wanted to distance myself from the evil. I wanted to look away. I could really empathize with the people who want to stop talking about race. I get it. I wanted to stop looking at it. I couldn't even go through the whole museum. I had to stop partway through. I told myself that my people weren't involved. This was a southern problem. And then I learned that one of the largest lynch mobs ever took place in my home state of Minnesota, in Duluth where 10,000 people gathered to murder three men, accused but not tried of a minor infraction. And we asked ourselves, how is it that the religion of the crucified could become the religion of the crucifier? Which is to say, how is it that the religion of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the man who shows us how to love and was killed for challenging empire, how did this Christianity become the religion of the crucifier? which is to say the religion that advocated for slavery, that provided moral cover for the lie that whites are superior to blacks so that the enormous and horrifying economic engine of slavery could proceed with the facade of decency. And then when slavery ended, a religion that would remain all too silent as lynchings terrorized the South and at times explicitly condoned them, including by listing them in bulletins. How did that happen? How could we miss the legacy of slavery, which led to racial terror lynchings and redlinings and housing policy explicitly designed to limit black ownership, and a GI Bill that wrote black soldiers out of the benefits so that as the middle class flourished after World War II, black families were largely cut out of the feast, 
and then a war on drugs that Nixon's advisor John Ehrlichman later admitted was designed and targeted for black men under the guise of law and order, so that now our country with 5% of the world population has 25% of the prison population, where 12% of our population is black, but 33% of the prison block is black, and one in three black boys will go to jail. How did we let that happen? The connections are as clear as day. And I respectfully submit to you that part of the reason we let that happen is because we didn't tell that story in predominantly white communities. Black folks saw it happening. They knew about it. They can tell you about it. But I didn't hear about it growing up. Did you? Brian Stevenson, who founded the Equal Justice Initiative, says that none of us deserves to be defined by the worst thing we've ever done. His beautiful work, Just Mercy, aligns with the Christian claim that in Christ, our past need not define our future. There is good news in grace and reconciliation, but as we learned from Naomi Tutu just a few weeks ago, reconciliation needs truth. We don't have to hide from it. We don't have to feel shame or guilt. But we have to know better so that we can do better. We have to grapple with the past so we can shape the future. As part of our pilgrimage, we started looking into our own history, personal and collective. Let me just tell you, spend some time on Google with the name Richard Peters. He was an Atlanta railroad and real estate magnate whose family owned most of Midtown, giving lands to All Saints, St. Luke's, Holy Innocents, Episcopal churches, and selling to many other institutions, including the Fox Theater. His family was incredibly wealthy, and they made most of their money from enslaved labor and the industries that depended on it, including in his home and in his plantation in Calhoun, Georgia. He ran the Atlanta Railroad for the Confederacy, providing critical support for rebels fighting to preserve slavery. Enslaved people built many of those railroads and cleared the land and picked the cotton that paid for the steam engines. The land that we now sit on, which we didn't pay for, is worth approximately $60 million. Net land came from the slave economy. So how did the religion of the crucified become the religion of the crucifier? And how do we find reconciliation amidst these difficult truths? I don't know, and I won't try to jump too quickly to an answer, but I want to tell you what they say at St. Paul's in Selma that church where the usher told Jonathan Daniels he couldn't come. It's a Maya Angelou quote. Do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. Do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. There's not much to gain from wallowing in shame or guilt. We were not there. We did not do those terrible things but we surely benefit from them. And one of the themes that emerged for me personally on the trip was that silence is violence, which is to say that silence in the face of evil allows violence to continue. Silence in the face of problematic broadcasts and policy and social media posts is violence. This is something I can do in my individual life. I can speak up for justice and truth even when it's uncomfortable but what about church collectively? What might be our role in all of this? 
I think this question ties us directly to the Feast of the Pentecost. It has to do with the difference between movements and institutions. Institutions have a massive incentive to preserve themselves, to preserve what they have been, what they want to do, and with good reason. And I actually think that's a large part of the reason that mostly white Protestant churches didn't speak up during the Civil War, during the lynchings. The Episcopal Church didn't take a stance on slavery because they didn't want to alienate the Southeast where the bulk of the money was, and frankly, where it still is. My dad was a rector of a church in Wichita, Kansas in the late 50s, and he would say his greatest regret, he, he liked Dr. King, he wanted to get involved in civil rights, but he didn't say anything because he was pretty sure he'd lose his job and jeopardize his family's only income. In fact, senior leaders are measured largely by their, their ability to generate the vital stats, like attendance and budgets. Investories understandably look at signs of institutional health. But I want to tell you about a church we met in Selma called Tabernacle Baptist Church. That's not what they did. They bet the ranch on voting rights in 1925, way before it was nationally supported. And then in 1963, they hosted the first ever mass meeting for voted right, voting rights amidst threats of violence. And you would have thought that everyone in that meeting there was black. And then, when a pickup truck full of white high school boys pulled up and they jumped out and they were armed with wooden clubs, they intended to start a bloody riot. And a single voice called from the crowd, go home. The boys recognized the voice. And they got back in the truck and they drove away. Nobody knew who said it, but whoever it was prevented bloodshed. Years later, Tabernacle learned that the voice that came was from the white high school football coach who came to protect the gathering. Mr. Phil, could you turn on the pulpit mic, please? Thank you. He could have lost his job. He could have suffered violence, but he was drawn to the movement. He came to the gathering at this church, and faced with violence, he did not remain silent. Pastor Dion told us the church needs to forget about preserving the institution. Don't worry about that. Be on the lookout for movements. He called us to pay attention to the energy, the calls for a more just creation, and then to show up for justice and love and compassion. That is what All Saints has done at our best. That's what we did when we got involved with the HIV-AIDS crisis in the 80s and the 90s, when we dug a cemetery in our garden so we could bury with dignity all those folks whose families had forgotten or abandoned them. That's who we are at our best. We are a movement church. We are an active church. We are difference makers when we set our minds to it. And I actually think that's what's possible when the Holy Spirit is the principal public leader of the church. We aren't worried about numbers anymore. We aren't afraid to tell the truth about what happened and call for justice as we imagine what God imagines could be. We are no longer afraid of discomfort. We engage conversations of depth and meaning with courage, even across difference. If you look at that first day of Pentecost, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, not just the Democrats, not just the Republicans, not just the CNN watchers, not just the MSNBC watchers, not just the Fox News watchers, if I'm getting too close to home. They were all 
filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and they were gathered together because together they were one body, and that was more than they could have done on their own. And suddenly they couldn't help but tell the world about a God of justice and love and compassion in every language imaginable. There was no silence, but instead an incredible courage and testimony. And friends, I want to tell you, this weekend I I saw things I will never unsee. I, I learned lessons I will never forget. And for the times I have been silent in the face of violence, I want to ask for your forgiveness and for God's forgiveness, for the ways I have benefited from and been complicit in unjust systems. I want to ask your forgiveness and God's forgiveness. And for the ways in which you and I are called to contest and correct these broken systems, in particular as we discern how God might be calling us to steward the gift of a $60 million piece of real estate, may we be sent and empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit to be difference makers in this world. You can't stop the Spirit. She is like a mountain old and strong. She goes on and on and on. She goes on and on and you can't stop the spirit she is like a mountain old and strong she goes on and on and on she goes on and on and on she goes on and on amen